and just start talking. So it's pretty pretty laid back. That's and great. End of that. Dude, hit it. Hit it, Hayden. Let's do it. All right. In three, two, one. Welcome back to another episode of Unscripted Exchanges. Uh, we are ex- super excited to have a guest on here, special guest, VIP guest, Mr. Patrick Henshaw. Patrick has been a, a mentor of mine. He's been in the uh, startup and VC game forever. I, I think I met Patrick. I think I met you back when I was like 20, 19 or 20. And I yep. was like, I pitched him the idea, my first startup idea. And I was, and he's like, oh, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Um, so we're super excited to have Patrick on here. He is very well versed in, in venture capital, fundraising, startups, business growth. He currently runs a Render Capital and Render. Uh, they are out of Louisville, Kentucky. Render Capital is a early stage investment fund working with uh, mostly early stage companies. They do have, I'll plug this real fast for you, Patrick. They have a competition going on called the Render Competition. There are eight startups that, correct me if I'm wrong, will get $100,000 each. Um, yep. As part of this competition, the applications are open until May 14th. They're they're, yep, they're live right now. They're going on. So get in there, apply, um, and you get, to, you get the chance at winning $100,000 and working with Render and Render Capital, Mr. Patrick Henshaw. So just a lot of cool stuff going on. I know we'll get more into it, but I wanted to hopefully make a good introduction for you, Patrick, and, and say we're excited to have you. Yeah, thanks, Hayden. Thanks, Cole, for having me on. This is exciting. Can't wait for today. I mean, we've got a lot of good questions and topics that we want to dive into. And again, really appreciate you carving out time out of your your busy schedule. Uh, Cole, do you want to uh, start with the first uh, topic or question? I want to give Patrick an opportunity to introduce himself. So I'm going to make this very simple because... You know, a lot of the times when you say, hey, introduce yourself, it's like, okay, great. Like, you want to tell me the whole story. Patrick, can you can you give us a, a background maybe around your work uh, recently with venture capital fundraising, what you guys are doing at Render Capital, and, and kind of your, your, you know, summarize as much as you want your story and how you kind of got into the startup environment? Oh, man. Well, it's too early in the day to dive into the bourbon that's behind me to go through the whole story. Uh, but... I guess starting with nearer term, yeah, so Cole, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, we, we're a render and render capital. Um, so a couple cool things before we dive into there. Uh, we're service disabled veteran known. I had a first life in the Army, which we can get into later. Um, we're also a certified B Corp, uh, which is pretty important to how and where uh, we operate. And we're a public benefit corporation. Um, so we are our, our mission is to drive impact through innovation to enable human flourishing. And we do that really in two ways. And you mentioned both of them, Cole. The the first is render capital. Um, So we have about 30 million under management there. Uh, We work across different uh, capital stacks. So we have everything from um, grants for black and brown founders to crowdfunded equity matching through our partners at WeFunder to uh, venture debt to traditional debt with our partners at uh, Community Ventures. Um, all the way through into the competition, which you mentioned every year, we invest uh, about $800,000 all in one night at Lynn Family Stadium, the soccer stadium here in Louisville, which is pretty cool. Um, and then um, we've got a traditional early stage venture fund where we invest anywhere in the Midwest and South, I say, in things that make sense for the Midwest and South, which mm-hmm. is fun. 
Um, and then on the other side of the house is our, uh, really is our corporate innovation studio. So we're management consultants largely for uh, Fortune, Fortune 100s, middle market companies, even some government agencies, universities, and large nonprofits. And, and really the byline there is we help them work with startups and help them work like startups. Okay. Um, so that's Render today. And like I said, the, the whole rest of the background is, is quite a story, but it started off uh, in Houston, Texas, uh, traveled through Afghanistan looking for roadside bombs, ended up managing billion dollar programs and then loved and uh, hated the bureaucracy of the military. So got out and started and exited three different businesses. So. Wow. I told you his story sweet. I mean, <laughs> we appreciate your service, by the way, too. He's okay? really got bourbon in the Thanks coffee cup. He's just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I do have two coffee cups. Just yeah. our product was like, what are, are you putting coffee in both of those? I was like, no, one is water. <laughs> Well, I've been uh, taking a few notes uh, ahead of time and just as you were sharing some of your opening story there, I guess for some of our listeners uh, that might not know a whole bunch and I'll raise my hand myself, I'm not going to act like I know a ton. When someone comes to you, when you say that you've got a $30 million portfolio uh, to invest in a whole bunch of different companies, when you're looking for raising this capital how does that like pitch go for the people that have the money and they're willing to to put into that portfolio? Does that question make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's a it's a question that I honestly didn't know the answer to until when Cole and I first met. So back uh, when I exited my last company, I moved from San Francisco to Cincinnati in 2016 uh, and joined the fund of funds there called Centerfuse. So we grew that from about 30 million to 150 million. Wow. And our investors at Centerfuse were Kroger and Procter and Gamble, uh, Michaelman, St. Elizabeth's Healthcare, Children's Hospital. Uh, and our, our pledge really was two types of return on or ROI, right? One was return on investment. We were giving those corporations back money. I'll get into how we did that more in detail. But then the other was return on innovation. Um, and so the question around fundraising, you know, I, I, I like I said, built and uh, exited three different companies. The third was venture backed. Um, and I thought every VC was an arrogant a-hole who had no bosses. Now, a couple of those statements might be true, but they all had bosses. <laughs> okay. Uh, because little did I know at center coming into Centerfuse, uh, us Centerfuse as a fund of funds, we were actually investors into those venture funds. So you know, uh, Lear Hippo and uh, Madrona and SV Health and Mercury Fund, all these top quartile firms, they have to, I now at Render Capital, I've got a pitch to high net worth individuals, family offices and fund of funds and even some private equity uh, backed firms to, to do what we do so we can unlock capital, right? And it is almost exactly the same as raising for a startup. Mm. You're going to have 200 meetings, uh, you're going to have, you know, 50 in-person sessions and you're going to get a couple dozen people say yes to you, mm -hmm. right? And you run it just like just like Cole ran sales processes and run sales processes, right? You've got a pipeline, you've got to fit a thesis area, you've got to fit a product. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you've got to follow up and follow through and be true to who you are and true to your thesis area. And that's how you unlock that capital um, from those from those individuals or, or offices. That's awesome. And when you were mentioning that you, when you're working uh, through the fundraising rounds here and gathering, you know, that large portfolio or lump sum of money through high network individuals, 
is there a minimum that someone would have to contribute to that portfolio or that fundraising? Yeah, so it's a good question. I'll answer that in two ways. Um, so, and the SEC is working on changing some of these regulations at a federal level, to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, right now, the only individuals that can invest in a vehicle like Render Capital are, are what's considered accredited investors mm-hmm. by the SEC. You have to have a certain amount of net worth or a certain amount of net earnings over the last three years to be able to even unlock this capital. Right. We won't get into why I'm not running for politics, but politicians need to change this stuff because why are we not allowing access to one of the highest performing mm-hmm. um, asset classes uh, that's available in our capitalistic society? But Oh, by the way, small side tangent, that's why we developed our partnership with WeFunder and why we've committed um, about $1.5 million in capital onto the WeFunder platform because we want unaccredited investors to be able to invest alongside an institutional investment fund, right? That's what me and my whole team does all day is find and source deals. Um, so, So the other side of that equation too is Uh, A direct answer to your question is it's all up to the portfolio manager, the GP or managing director like me on their minimums. Um, For us, we've got a a $500,000 minimum. Um, And now the the caveat to that is unlike a real estate deal or a startup individual investment or an angel investment, that 500K that are up to, you know, some of our um, LPs have committed up to $5 million that that capital commitment is over five years okay so they keep they keep their money in whatever asset class or portfolio or manage uh ability that they do typically with a family office manager or, or, or a uh, private wealth uh office manager or whatever and then w- once every quarter or so when we make investments then i call that capital hey everybody i need 250 grand because we're investing in, uh, I think we just went public with this so I can say it's zero carb, uh, the pizza crust, right? So they're awesome company out of Evansville, pizza crust made out of four ingredients, chicken breast, salt, pepper, and eggs. Ooh. Growing and scaling like hotcakes. I don't know if their recent 400 store launch is public, but I'll just leave it at that. And uh, maybe we can include a link later, but super exciting stuff that's happening there. So that's when I would call capital for my investors. So I'm not calling all that you know, 15, 30, whatever million dollars uh, up front. So you're, so you're basically saying, Hey, I'm, I'm just understanding the way it works with you guys, how you manage it is you'll have a five-year period say, Hey, over the next five years, what are you willing to contribute? A, a 1.5, 1 million, 500,000 is your minimum. And then you, you don't just say, Hey, wire me the money today. You say, Hey, when I need it, I'll let you know, you got to set that aside and I can come after that within the next five years. Now, my my next question to you, then following up on that, um, and for our, you know, because you got into a lot, Patrick, about, you know, I, and I totally agree with the, you know, the accredited investors and how they're kind of like, they're given this priority. And then you've got like yeah. CrowdFunder and Kickstarter and, some, and places that have tried to kind of fill the gap. They haven't been able to totally bridge the gap, but they've tried to fill that gap for people like, you know, people like everyday Joe's to be able to invest mm-hmm. in something that, like you said, could be the highest rate of return, right? You invest in a company, exactly. you know, let's say you only have $50,000 to invest and, and that's something you pull out and, and it, the company takes off, right? That could be a huge win, right? That could change totally. your life. And and it's like well, people are not being able to do that, even though it's their money, right? It's yeah. totally agree with, like, I, and we don't have to get into that, but I totally agree with that. Um <laughs> Yeah, we get on a rabbit hole. But I guess my question to you is, 
for investors that are, are investing through your programs and through your fund, what is their expectation? Like what kind of, and you don't have to get too into the weeds, but like what kind of expectations can they have on, like, do they, do they have to wait? Cause I mean, we all, and we'll probably get into the SVB, you know, later on, maybe get your thoughts sure. on that. Um, but even like, even going back to the Bernie Madoff, uh, when he, you know, all of a sudden people started pulling money out of his, and that's where his, that's why his Ponzi scheme collapsed. Cause everybody started getting yep. scared and he didn't have enough cash to cover the deposit, like the, the cash out. Right. And yep. my question to you is like, how do you manage that as, as a, as a fund, how do you manage that? Hey, once we've, you know, taking our full $500,000 in this five-year period, do you have agreements or say, hey, you know, this is where it's going and you can't pull that money out for this a certain amount of period of time? That's right. Yeah. And a, and a couple different kind of tactical pieces there. Uh, one, uh, even preempting all that, one of the reasons why we don't call all that capital at the beginning is one of the most important metrics for uh, a venture capitalist or any investment, whether it's real estate or whatever, uh, is this uh, calculus called the internal rate of return. Basically, the velocity of your capital making money on your money, mm -hmm. right? So if I pull all that, you know, 15, 30 million today, I'm not deploying it immediately into companies that are that are increasing their share value. Right. So that's why we leave it with them. And we say we're only going to take that money when we are investing in a company that is that is uh, fast growing. The second piece of that is re expectations. And I'm I'm super transparent here because we've got a mantra at, at, at render of trust, transparency and communication. Right. What happened with uh, Bernie Madoff and, and a lot of these other, frankly, scammers was they weren't transparent. Mm -hmm. They didn't communicate. And they shouldn't have been trusted, right? right? And so how we manage that is one, we're out front and we say, hey, this asset class, oh, by the way, which should only make up anywhere from five to seven of your total uh, net worth, this, this high risk, high reward category, it is high risk, right? But it is high reward, right? So just for you know, uh, uh, example's sake, if we invest in 20 companies, at an early stage venture fund, what, what we talk, tell our investors is, anywhere from 12 to 15 of those companies will fly straight into the wall. They're gonna go bankrupt, they're gonna go out of business, they're not gonna do anything, right? Uh, two to three of those 20 might give us our money back, right? They might give us the 250 grand to a million and a half that we put into them over the life cycle, their investment cycle back. Um, the but, and where really you'll, you'll hear this term called the fund earners, those are the one or two companies that pay back the entirety of that fund anywhere from 5, 10, 20x of that, right? Uh -huh. And so that's where we're getting in is we're getting equity or we're, 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 we're getting promises through a, a vehicle called a safe, a uh -huh. secure agreement for future equity. We're buying equity in that company for that, uh, that payday at the end of the day. And we're also transparent to the typical lockup period for our early stage investments is anywhere from seven to 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. And that's typically how long it takes a, what we call a high growth startup um, from time of founding and early institutional investment to when they undergo a transaction or an exit activity where they're, um, they either SPAC or go public or they're uh, merged or acquired by a, by a strategic investor, um, private equity firm or a, or a corporation. Well, I, I, and I love the transparency there. I mean, the way you're describing how you guys go about it is it's very black and white. You're saying, Hey, we understand 
there's a lot of risk. There's mm -hmm. not the, the, the amount it's, it's, and you're even saying to simplify, it's a numbers game. We get 20 yeah. startups, hopefully two to three make it. It's the 80, 20 rule, right? 80% right. of your sales come from 20% of your clients, maybe even a little less, right? You're going to, you're going to make your not. And that's why you got to diversify too. You got to spread that out to find the right ones. Um, I, I just love that message you've got there. And I think that for our listeners and for me, it, it makes it very clear on how, a, a, a capital firm such as Render Capital should manage the funds That's of their right. investors and should invest in startups. That's the way to do it. That's the way to, to not only gain trust and gain and, and help startups, but you're also like you're, you're, you're building a brand that I, I think is trustworthy. And it's phenomenal. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. And the other thing, other caveat there too, is I didn't know this when I first started raising money from VCs, uh, is most firms, ours included, uh, much of the capital is the individual GPs or managing directors. So this is my money going into this fund too. Mm -hmm. It's not just me being a, a portfolio manager of only somebody else's money and I'm making a bunch of you know salary off of the thing. Right? You got skin this in is the my game. own personal money, hundred percent, right? And that's that's why and how that drives our conviction for it is obviously uh, uh, me and. Uh, Mike, my operating partner, and Tret uh, Nguyen, our, our new senior associate, this is what brings us the conviction to invest in those companies is our operational background, but also the cash that's in it uh, from us. Well. Yeah, you got to be, you're not just putting up other people's money. It's like, okay, no. like, this is, yeah. That's <laughs> well, a that's how you build transparency and credibility is what I'm hearing, I think, which is awesome. That's fantastic, which sounds yeah, like that's one of you. Go ahead. The other tactical side note too, and, and small plug for uh, one of my one of my uh, favorite folks in the venture uh, landscape uh, is we use this platform called Visible VC. It's Visible.VC, founded by a, a guy named Mac uh, Mike uh, Price uh, out of Chicago originally. He was one of the OG uh, high alpha companies actually back in the day, which now high alpha has swelled to over I think half a billion under management. Uh, but they do a great job, not only for uh, GPs or general partners funds like me, but also to help startups be transparent um, in how and where they're reporting their metrics and cash flow and all that, all that kind of fun stuff. So it's a great platform. That's awesome. You got to check that out. That's super killer. So I want to, um, you have any questions or comments you want to make? Cause I got, I got one comment and then I, I got a question that I'll, I'll jump you into. Go first. Yeah. I mean, first off, I'm learning a, a ton here, a lot of new acronyms as well. I'm jotting oh, down yeah. notes in real and time. I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> spell them all out. No, I appreciate it. Vulcan speak. No, like I said, this has been great. I gotta do that now. We'll, we'll, end, we'll sign off with the Vulcan. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this might be taking the the conversation in a slightly different uh, direction, but just what has been your favorite investment personally uh, that you've made, or maybe that the firm has made? Render Capital, um, and do you mind sharing that? And that's like that's like asking a parent to pick their favorite. I was kid. about to say you're like hey, I'm. I yeah. have tough questions over here. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you my favorite kid uh, is right behind me because we only have one. Um, but, man, that's tough. They're all so interesting and unique. Uh, Maybe not favorite. I'm going to make this easy for you. Not favorite. Just pick one that you thought was really interesting. 
Yeah, there we go. Thank you for refining my question. I mean, we, we talked earlier in the in the pre-show, but Resound FM is pretty cool. Um, so they take the ums and the ahs out of podcasting, which obviously I need help with. Uh, but it help it helps take the producer's time, you know, break it and like yeah, cut it down huge. by eighty or ninety percent, which is pretty cool. We don't invest in bourbon, even though there's a ton of bourbon behind me. Um, but we have this awesome company called uh, uh, Alt Distilling. Um, their brand is called Naked Lady, and it's basically a spiritless spirit. And it's intended to be an edgy brand, so you can still be a part of the party. But instead of ordering something, uh, a virgin or non-alc or whatever, you can order at the bar, uh, give it to me naked. Um, so that's another pretty cool one. Um, so it's non-alcoholic. I mean, they're all awesome. It's, it's non-alcoholic, yes. right? It is non-alcohol. They literally distill the spirit from the spirit. Um, so it's pretty It's pretty cool. Okay. You just, first of all, I didn't have to jump in. Because Hayden knows how much I love, I love not, so I don't drink. But I drink non-alcoholic beers. Like I love non-alcoholic drinks. Like non-alcoholic IPAs, non-alcoholic uh, like mixed drink, you know. I, I mean, I'll, dude, I'll go out and it's like, I'll, I'll kill a 12 pack of, and everybody, like, and most people don't know they're like non-alcoholic drinks. So they're like, man, dude, how are you doing so well? I'm just like, man, I just hold my alcohol better than you. That's all I guess. <laughs> um, but I, I'm just that whole game. And I didn't know that existed. Like I wrote, I mean, I'm literally going to go order some of that as soon as we get off this podcast. Can you order it online? Yeah, you, you can get it at uh, most total wines that well and, and, a real quick answer to your question is that's one of the reasons why we invested in them. Because if you're familiar with the alcohol space, uh, the U.S. basically dictates above a certain ABV, you have to go through what's called this third tier system. Right? Mm -hmm. You basically have to use a broker to get it in the hands of consumers. Um, but because there's no alcohol in it, you can sell direct to consumers and you can put it on shelves wherever you want to. Um, so it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's that's just got me hyped. I'm sorry, I had to cut in for that because... I'm a huge fan of the space. I want to get into this space. Um, I was actually just like the other day I called Hayden. I said, I'm drinking these brew dogs, brew dogs out of Cincinnati. I said, I got, that's my favorite them and athletic athletics got an awesome yep. story too. Um, uh, we've been working on a partnership with them, but I, I absolutely just love being able to go have a drink like that. feel like I'm participating, you know, I'm like, I'm like this all the time. Right. So I can go out and have fun. Yeah kill my kill my NAs and my wife I can drive my wife home from the bar like it's perfect right like we're good to go yep. um so I called him the other day I'm like dude we got to come up with one like we got to <laughs> like we got to have a UE like non-alcoholic IPA I mean I'm I'm sure it. that space is doubled if not tripled I don't have numbers in front oh, yeah, of me huge. but NAs yeah, yeah is yeah going bonkers for yeah. sure well and, and to your point Aiden I, I think the all lends the favorite company and really what's down the fairway for us in the in the um, kind of equity investing space um, is companies like that I've mentioned in our portfolio that are typically growing 30% quarter over quarter um, in metrics that matter for them, right? Whether that's revenue or monthly active users or, or whatever that category is. Um, and then the target would be that they're doubling or tripling year over year. Right. And, and without getting into numbers for, for zero carb, they basically did exactly that um, over the last couple of years. And I mentioned this, you know, 400 stores launched that they're uh, about to go public with um, their most recent investment round, which they just went public with. Um, those guys are, you know, funnily enough, selling like hotcakes, but they're selling <laughs> back to the non-alcohol all space. People who want pizza want to eat pizza, but they want to eat pizza in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so that's how they're changing the landscape on, on that side. 
that's awesome. Uh, one other thought as you were describing that, uh, another like buzzword and I'm a, a former analyst for, for Kroger MAU. So monthly active users, like, do you guys have a certain set of criteria or KPIs that you guys look for in companies? And are you willing to share a couple of those KPIs? Yeah. So, so it all depends on their business model and their go-to-market. Um, so as an example, one of our other awesome portfolio companies is called V simple. They're basically building the operating system for the future for middle market companies. Mm. Um, so while we want to see monthly active user growth there, what we're more concerned with or, or more fascinated with with them is how much time inside the platform their super users are spending. Mm. Right. If you think about Zoom or Slack or Gmail or wh whatever, you know, SaaS based businesses on a business to business level, that's a really important thing for them, right? How much time are you spending in Slack? How much time are you spending in Notion or Asana or whatever, right? So, th so that's a key piece. Um, the other side of the house, which which marketplaces are really hard for us, we, we don't invest in uh, dual sided marketplaces, um, but user growth is important. The, the caveat is sometimes that's, we consider a lot of that user growth as, as a vanity metric hmm. because and why we why we relegate it back to monthly active users, you could have you know 150,000 users, but only 10 of them log on each month or each day or whatever, yep. right? Um, so really, the kind of net of that uh, question or the answer to that is really how sticky your product is, how, how how necessary are you to their business or to their daily life or to their impact um, for them to for them to not give up that product and easily go somewhere else. That so. makes a lot of sense. You look like you got another question always, that you're I got, thinking. I always got stuff to say, but when I mean, you had some good questions, I'll let you keep rolling with it. <laughs> I don't want to steal the show. From go, you. dude, go ahead, <laughs> steal the show. Um, again, kind of taking us down maybe a little bit of a different route. In terms of you know all the companies that you've worked with or you've just observed personally, what would you say? most companies should either stay away from or where, where do you see startups go wrong that a lot of people just don't think about for whatever reason? It's like, Hey, if more people knew about this, it could help, you know, save your company, save, you know, your, your stress levels, et cetera. Yeah. I would say the number one thing that's pervasive, whatever business model market industry that you're into or building into is, the especially first-time founders right because if you've done this before even if you failed you, you you learn some of this stuff but the the number one thing uh from my perspective and experience of why companies fail is they are too busy building a product mm. and not building a solution mm. right uh and what happens is when you're when you're building that product it's the figurative analogy of a of a hammer looking for a nail. And after a while, when you're struggling, everything looks like a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And then you're just destructive, right? Um, and, and you're not actually building a solution to an opportunity set and a need. And especially in the B2B space, we coach and, and talk with founders a lot. Who is your P&L holder, mm -hmm. right? Who has money today and a line item today that you can go get money out of their uh, P&L and put it into your pocket, right? And and a lot of companies are like, oh, this is the newest and greatest and, you know, what a literally blot. And it's like, well, who's going to pay for that? And how are they going to pay for that? And do they have a budget line item for it? 
Um, and sometimes that does need to be scripted. Like they, they need to help coach the corporate into, Hey, you know, this new spend should come from marketing or should come from HR or should come from whatever budget. Um, but the, but is they've got to identify the problem. They have to build a solution, not a product. And then the caveat to that is they've got to build a solution that there is budget and line item to pay for. Well, so. I, th- I love that analogy, especially when you're talking about like P and L's and having a line item for it, because you know, from my sales background and, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about sales and, and, and business growth, but you know how you do that from a sales perspective and the hardest sell, the hardest sell is when somebody doesn't have budget for something and doesn't understand why they need it. Right. So it, a lot of the times when they don't have a budget for it, they don't know they need it. So then you're going, especially when you're going to a bigger corporate company and saying, Hey, even yep. a small mom and pop and you say, Hey, this would change your business landscape. This could do this, this, and this. Here's your value prop. They go, okay, great, but I don't, I don't know where I'm gonna get money for it, right? I don't. So That's like, right. they, they don't know. And then if you're really good, if you're really good, you can educate them. You can help them get there, but that's gonna drag your sales process out. You know, especially totally. as a startup, you don't want to have that. You know, depending on what you're building, you don't want to have that six to eight to ten to twelve month sales process. You want something that you can do in two to three months, if not less, just depending on the size. Right. And if you're looking at that longer sales process, now you're just, now it's all like customer acquisition cost, right? If I got to spend eight, right. eight to 10 months selling this, well then my customer acquisition went way up. So that means my price has to go way up or I make zero money. Well then exactly. by the time you've raised your price to cover your customer acquisition cost, the customer doesn't want to buy it because it's too expensive. Exactly. So, yeah, so, so two pieces there. My, my uh, wife, Lydia, who's an amazing multi-time founder, um, she led product innovation for Procter & Gamble before she started and sold her last startup. Um, but she's in the market now to buy um, a middle market company. Okay. Um, and one of the key pieces uh, as a part of her search criteria for, for buying this middle market company is um, a low percentage of the PL is spent on this product service or platform and there is an outsized amount of return and daily usage for this product service and platform mm. and i'll say that differently basically if you take up a large majority of their PL uh, of their purchase uh, of their profit and loss uh, of their budget for this line item mm-hmm. and you're not producing infinite outsized returns for that you're the fastest thing to get cut and chopped, right? Yeah. Or, the, or the fastest thing to be looked at for, hey, we can go to somebody else who's cheaper or faster or better or whatever and replace this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the other side of that, uh, what we do, and, and, and really I, I took this from my time at Centerfuse on our corporate innovation side of the house, we're trying to streamline a lot of these pilots and stuff with corporations with how we interact with them. Um, so one of the biggest problems that I had with my, with my uh, last startup was, um, I, I won't name any names, but we got walked into the front door or side door of a large uh, publicly traded consumer packaged goods company out of uh, the city of Cincinnati. And we we were offered a $15,000 pilot, uh, which that's great. Cool. We'll get a logo on a slide, you know, pump it through, get the thing, get some traction, yeah. you know, whatever. That process, back to what Cole, what you were saying, that that sales process for us, not only did it last six to nine months, but it cost us $80,000 in legal fees to get through that. 
<laughs> so what we do, what we do differently at Render is we actually, and, it, and it's helpful too that um, we're service disabled, veteran owned. We go in as that basically general contractor. So we have large bulk contracts with, uh, you know, Cumanas and Louisville Waters and whoever in the world, and then they tell us their problem sets, and then we walk that that startup in the side door. And it's not big corporate mega overlord that's paying that startup. It's render. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to go through legal and procurement and my freaking fingerprints are on file at some of these big corporates yep. that we work with. Right. Um, so we validate and verify the problem from the corporation. And then we actually end up paying the startup to help streamline that process. And if it doesn't work out, you know, that's great. You know, internal legal didn't spend six to nine months in procurement and, you know, whatever. Um, and the startup got their money, right? They got their 50 or 150 grand in a pilot or whatever. Um, and if it does work out, the awesome thing about that is now there's an innovation champion internal to that corporation that says, hey, they solve a big problem, they're cost effective, and I'm gonna now, as that internal champion to this corporate, I'm gonna now walk that startup in the front door and hold their hand for the just, whole procurement dude, I process. literally... Uh, we're cutting that because I love the strategy behind that. That is absolutely genius. I wish everybody, everybody listening would just write that down, clip it, listen to it five or six times because a lot of the times going and pounding on the front door is great. You got to mm -hmm. do that sometimes, but what you really want to do, especially when you want to scale or grow a business is find a champion, figure out a way to get in there with a low, and the biggest thing I'm hearing, it's low risk. You're saying, hey, That's Render, right. we'll take the risk. It's low That's risk right. for you, you know, PNG, whoever it is, I'm just throwing names out there. It's low risk for you. We're going to take the brunt end of it, but you know us. You know what we do. We'll pay for it. And now you've got proof. You've sh shortened the timeline. And now you've got somebody that's going, I didn't have to, because the biggest thing you don't do is, like you said, the innovation champion doesn't have to stick his neck out. Most people exactly right. in corporate environments don't want to stick their neck out, especially nope. if it goes wrong. They don't. They don't want. They'll say they will. They'll 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 talk to talk, and that's nothing wrong with it. It's not a knock. But at the end of the yeah. day, if they're not going to go push something that they know could come back and really hurt them, but if you make it really easy, they can come and say, "Hey, I didn't have to go. I didn't have to go jump through hoops to stick my neck out there." But hey, I got these results. Check this out, right? That's right. They're way yeah, they're, more they're not incentivized to take risks in any way, shape, or form. I love and so that. So that's what we say too is, is render helps de-risk innovation, mm -hmm. right? As we get to be that third-party vetter, we've got the network and the experience and the background um, to, to be able to do that and take the risk off of their shoulders. Uh, and sometimes too, and I get it, and you know, I, we did this in, in my first company too, we also can lay down and you know put our arms down and be the big bad dirty vendor on the outside. Well, render screwed this one up, right? Well, what I did when when I when we accepted you know air quotes that we screwed up, right, or, or had a bad pilot is I just got massive brownie points with my innovation champion internally, right? Because they got to point the blame at somebody else, and then conversely, what we do. If, if it is successful, we turn it straight back to the innovation chip. Well, this was all, you know, Sheila's yep. idea or Frank's idea. Like those guys are crushing it, right? That That's really how we are able to, to de-risk that side of the house, but also, frankly, increase the speed of innovation, right? Because a lot of these corporations, they're getting outpaced and outrun by these, you know, thousand different ankle biter brands that are growing faster than them. Um, so that's what we're trying to do is help them speed access and de-risk the uh, access to innovation. It gets me jacked up. You know that, Hayden. Hayden's looking at everything. <laughs>
I love it. I love every I love every piece of that. Uh, I think the the really cool thing too, and maybe a question for you is when you guys are when you guys are going in and working with startups and, and working through this process, what what type of uh, reaction do you get? I mean, are most of your founders come from sales background? They come in from engineering background. Like, what's your mix? And then, you know, what do you look like? What do you look for when you've got the opportunity to do this? Like, what kind of of startup founder are you looking for? Yeah, so I would say the most successful startup founders that uh, we have seen have lived experience, um, right? With that uh, problem set that they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, Ideally, they have had some type of risk-taking or entrepreneurial efforts um, in their past as well, whether that's founding a company or starting a business or even uh, sometimes uh, that includes uh, taking internal risks at a corporate, uh, at a corporation before they jump um, and, and move into the entrepreneurial sector. Um, but the, the really biggest thing, um, that we look for is a founder that's coachable, um, and, and able to consume and synthesize quickly. Right. Um, and you know, Cole, you and I have talked about this before, but never in my life growing up in the pretty cruddy neighborhood that I did in Houston, Texas, did I ever think that I would be sitting as a VC investing in companies, right? Mm-hmm. The only reason from my own perspective why, why that happened was my network, right? And and me being able to consume and synthesize and do what you guys are doing, which is helping your listeners consume more and get exposed more, right? And, and we talk about this a lot, even on the investing side of the house. So we just launched a uh, an angel education network uh, that's open to ev- anyone. All, all your listeners are, are welcome to join. We partnered with the National Angel Capital Association to launch this programming. And the big thing was around, uh, it, it's not that people are uneducated, right? It's not that we're not smart humans, right? It's that we're unexposed, mm-hmm. right? We, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't know because we haven't been exposed to, it, right? I didn't know this back when I started my company, right? Uh, and, and started those companies. I had no idea what the world of venture capital looked like. I thought it was like being Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and that guy is arrogant, doesn't have a boss and all the other negative <laughs> I made earlier. Uh, but that's really the big piece, right? Is, is founders being coachable, uh, having lived experience in the, in the problem area and the solution set that they're building, um, and then being open to network and, and consuming uh, concepts, capital, customers, and talent from, from all over. It's extremely insightful. That's that's clippable. I'm already thinking of clipping that. I love that information. That's extremely valuable for us and our listeners. I have I, I can keep rattling off and go ahead. So I'm gonna jump back to uh, a, a topic and a question from this. Um, you were mentioning your wife's kind of in the market looking to, I believe, purchase a middle market company. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. What yep. is the definition of a middle market company? And then like, where would one kind of start to look for companies like that? Because Cole and I have kind of discussed some things offline and just curious to, to pick your brain. And if you don't want to answer that, that's fine too. No, to, again, I'm totally transparent. So I'll, I'll take a step back and up. Um, so there is this monster trend, not, not, not trend, really uh, movement across the US where over this next 10 year period, we are about to have the largest transference of wealth in 
our nation's history mm -hmm. to the tune of 16 trillion dollars yes that's with a t mm -hmm. right and and what this is is these are entrepreneurs and family-owned businesses that are either on their first or second generation of founding and there's one of two pathways that's happening one their kid or their their you know uh partner doesn't want to take it over um and two they're looking for an exit pathway Right. Well, the, the macro trend that we're seeing that that Lydia is seeing is that there's a bunch of private equity groups that are being spun up around this. And they're they're purchasing what I would call like upper middle market companies. So these are you know companies that are doing 50, 75, 100 million in top line revenue. Mm. Um, th those are great for these, you know, multi billion or multi hundred million dollar funds to buy and acquire and create operational efficiencies. Mm -hmm. Well, this lower middle market really is in the two to call it $50 million a year in top line revenue. As strange as this sounds, that is too small for a private equity firm to purchase. Wow. Number one. Number two, it's typically too small for to just outlay their own personal cash or net worth um, to go purchase. Um, and so direct answer to your question, how do you find it? How do you fund it? How do you source it? Um, there are broker dealers that help with that much like a real estate agent, right? There's a whole sub industry of business, uh, buyers and sellers that do this. Uh, the second is there's this swell of websites like biz by sell and micro acquire, um, that are, that are helping, uh, be more transparent and specific in, in connecting these pieces. Um, but at the end of the day, lower middle market, how we, uh, how Lydia is quantifying that really is a business that's in the two to $50 million in, in top line revenue a year. That's awesome. I appreciate you diving into that, that detail there. And I kind of had an assumption in terms of what that was, and we've seen some stuff. Uh, we actually, uh, have been following a, a page on one of our social platforms called unconventional acquisitions, and they kind of break mm -hmm. down things similar to what you were describing, which is just yeah. fascinating. And to your point, and what, one of my favorite new buzzwords is entrepreneurship by acquisition. Yeah. yeah I love right? it. Right. You, you don't, you don't, I mean, obviously you're de-risking, right? Capital. If you, you are starting a business totally. Yeah. But if, if you're looking and this is really where it ends up at the end of the day for these long-term lifestyle business, from our perspective, that's a great way to grow that. Now on the other side of the equation, on the venture capital side, and, and just to, to put a pin in this on, on expectations and returns, not only for the funders, founders, and my investors is, if you take venture capital, the expectation is that you are done as a founder and CEO within that seven to 10 year time horizon, mm -hmm. right? Like you're out, that, that's, you're, yeah, you're, you're supposed to exit. You're done, the business is sold, you've made an exit, you, you've gotten a bunch of money, you've made your investors a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. That's how the venture capital landscape works, right? The private equity landscape, on the other hand, is more focused on dividends and cash and EBITDA, or, uh, 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 basically margin for that business. So they the dividends are basically the cash disbursements year over year. Yeah, for they're cash flowing. It's it's all about cash. Exactly, flowing. exactly, exactly. So yeah, the the uh, that space and and one of the things Hayden mentioned the un unconventional acquisitions uh, is I mean they they a lot of the stuff they talk about and I'm not a big follower of 
I don't waste my time with platforms that don't give me something with media media outlets that don't give me and teach me something. Every now and then I'll watch the funny reels on Instagram just to waste time knowing that I'm killing 45 minutes of my life. I'll never get back, but I might laugh. Like, I like that. I'm okay with that. I'll admit that. Right. But then I, I, I carved that time out. The point I'm trying to make is that where I think your wife's like, and we've got a, and Patrick, you're going to have to put it a good word for us. So we're going to have her on the show. too. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a duel. We'll have both on again. Hell yeah. Um, is the acquisition of existing businesses and, and they've posted a lot about this, and I've done some digging. The amount of people over the next decade that are going to be retiring, that are running multi-million dollar mm-hmm. businesses, that are profiting, you know, 50%, 60%, I mean, killing it, whether it's a heating and cooling company or somebody that runs a few local a laundry uh, mat. laundry mats or car, car washes, like stuff like that, that they're, they're crushing it. But the next – either they didn't have kids or they had kids that don't want to be a part of the business – or they just want to exit and retire, the amount of businesses that are available to purchase and acquire over the next 10 years, I think is like skyrocketing. And and people, people tend to go, well, I'm not an entrepreneur if I do that. It's like, what's, it's just like anything in life is relative. What does that really mean? Entrepreneur is what you make of it. Entrepreneurship is determining your financial future and and, right. and running something, whether you ac- acquire it, whether you started it from the ground zero, like it's all about, in my mind, if you do that, you can buy a business that's functioning, that's got a good name for themselves, maybe locally, put some operations in place and scale it. And you've already, you're, you're going into it making money versus that's a, it's tough to start something from ground zero. It's that's very, right. very, very tough. Yeah. Yeah. The other interesting thing too, is we're hearing and we're investing in a lot of these trends of the future of AI and ML. Um, on the other side of the house, on the private equity, lower middle market side, there's businesses that for decades, uh, maybe their processes might be disrupted by technology, but I've got, I've got a buddy just as an anecdote um, out, out in the San Francisco and the uh, NorCal area. He, he just bought a gasket company. He's a fellow uh, West Point grad. Uh, and one of the reasons why he bought it is, you can't automate putting in a gasket, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but <laughs> what you it. can what you can automate is your scheduling, um, your your process orientation, your ARAP, right? That's what Be Simple does. Uh, one of our portfolio companies, right? That's why we're investing in the future of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't you can't automate uh, a guy or gal going in the field at Costco or Applebee's or Taco Bell or wherever to replace the gasket seal on the refrigerator. You just can't do that. I love it. I love it. And, and what you're describing, he's looking at is, and this is, and you talked about this earlier when you were talking about, you know, a company that's got a big bucket for on their P&Ls for this, right? If they've got a huge bucket, well, the first thing that company is going to do, if a, if a new CEO starts over, they're reallocating budget for the next year. And they're saying, hey, we want to increase our margins. Well, there's only two ways to increase your margins. You either A, start selling stuff for higher prices or B, cut your costs. Mm-hmm. Because you can increase right. your margins by cutting your operational expenses. So you look at, yep. okay, where can we cut costs? Of course, you're going to look at the biggest biggest budget line item. That's right. right. You're going to say, okay, let's go to here, 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 and here, and let's bring let's, let's get money out of that. You know, because sometimes it's not as easy to increase your year-over-year growth, but you're like, hey, I can increase my bottom line if I get rid of some costs. So what it sounds like he's doing is, you know, what he'll be able to do, is maybe he can grow it and get it and, and grow it larger, but what, if he starts automating some things, some scheduling, some operations, some processes, then he can increase the bottom line 
And that's you what, got it. I mean, at the end of the day, net income is what matters and you want to be making money. You, you got it. Yeah, yep. I mean, not every business or entrepreneur has to own a, a sexy business, as I would call it. I mean, as long as, and I'm totally. oversimplifying, you know, it's got a, a stable uh, cash flow and yeah, you are profitable. Like, why why not try to de-risk, again, kind of going down the, the path of looking for a company that's already been established and someone's trying to sell it and you can acquire it. That might be, for any listener out there, maybe a more viable route versus starting something from scratch. Again, you got to pick your, your hard, um, and it just really depends on the situation. But there's a lot of great opportunities opening up like over the next 10 years. Pick your hard. Yeah, I mean. I haven't heard that. Yeah. We didn't put that That's on the t-shirt. That was yeah. a good one. You haven't heard that before? No. Come on, like man. It. Come on. <laughs> I like it. Uh, another uh, important question. Um, I mean, these are all great questions and important questions, I think, in my mind. Cole and I are big on this. Uh, Work-life balance. You mentioned that you have mm -hmm. a, a kid. How do you think of what a work-life balance means to you? And like, yeah, how do you kind of go about that on a given work week? Yeah, it's a good question and constantly something that's top of mind and part of our culture here at Render. Um, I, I've got an optimistic all boats will rise mentality, but I also have a realistic mentality of how and why um, talent leaves, right? And talent goes elsewhere, mm -hmm. um, right? That's why at Render, um, we have a, uh, we actually mirror similarly to, to Buffer, the social media scheduling platform. We mirror, mirror their revenue share uh, agreement with their employees, right? Um, and because I want to be able to reward longevity, impact, um, and and time um, in our organization. But as a piece of that too, we we've got unlimited vacation. Uh, we've got two mandatory weeks a year where we shut down the office mm -hmm. over July Fourth and over Christmas. We call it corporate rest. Um, we we mandate that, um, and then. Uh, on the on the uh, unlimited vacation side of the house, we actually track that. It's not just like you can leave whenever you, I mean, you can leave whenever you want, but we track it. So we force people to use it, right? We'll be you like, want hey, the, you want them know. taking time off. You don't, yeah. Totally, exactly. And, and the other cool part too, well, where we're centrally located uh, in and around uh, the Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana area, we've got an awesome remote work policy too. So my wife and I have a, a ranch back in back in Texas that we go to three or four times a year. And thanks to the powers of the interwebs and Elon Musk, we've got Starlink out there now. And I can take video calls and podcasts and you know whatever and get work done. And at the same time, shut my laptop and go shoot some skeet with my six-year-old on the back, back 40. Um, so that's a big thing for us because for me, um, you know, I've had 20 addresses in the last 20 years and I don't want another address for the next 20 years. Right. Um, and, and when my daughter was first born, uh, Lydia had just sold her last company or her first company. She was at Procter & Gamble. I was at Centerfuse. We were in the startup space. There was a lot of evening events. Um, and granted, our daughter went to bed at, at like 630. But we had like 60 different babysitters in Cincinnati because we didn't have any family. Right. And so when we moved to the Louisville, Southern Indiana area, um, we actually moved our family with us. So my mother-in-law lives with us now. Uh, my mom and dad uh, now live 20 minutes up the road from us. Um, and so that's been a huge piece of uh, work-life balance for us is just making sure that not only for me as the, as the chief executive, but also our team. And we press that into our team, like go take a mental health day, like go literally go for a hike, like 
Go, don't just put your phone leave. down. Like, turn do your, your turn your Wi-Fi off. Like hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. So, and it's a big piece, and you got, and we're seeing this in the news, and sadly, it it happened again here last week in Louisville, where where mental health um, is such a problem, right? And and it's uh, we need to be more transparent. We need to be more communicative with our employees, and we need to understand that we're not robots. We're humans. And we can't. And 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 even furthermore, you get your best work. You get your best work and your best results out of people that feel appreciated, feel like they've gotten time to themselves. Because I've always looked at it this way too, Patrick. And I know we're, we're getting close on time, so we have, we'll have a couple more questions. But I want to make this point. I've always looked at it like this. You know, if it, typical nine to five work week, right? The typical back in the day, even eight to five. Think about how much time people you're spending away from your family and how much time you're spending commuting. And you start looking at it that way and you're saying, okay, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. Your majority of your time is actually spent at, at either at the office or working. And so shouldn't we be, have the ability to spend the, uh, as equal amount of time getting what we need, right? If you start balancing that out more and, and say, hey, you need a two-hour break, take a two-hour break. You need a day off, take a day yeah. off, right? Then you're not going to run up against the wall of like, Hey, I'm depressed or I'm down because all I do is work because all I do is go do my job and I don't have the ability and the bandwidth to do anything else. And for me, like I've got two daughters. I have my second now. She's 18 months old. I, I love that about where, where I'm at right now. What I do is I'm able to do stuff like this. I'm able to come podcast. I'm able to take the, take the afternoon off, go ride the horses, right? Go on vacations for me. I'm way more productive doing that. I get way more done and I enjoy myself. And I think totally. that's, that's to me, like you hit the nail on the head. That is what's important. And I think the, you know, social media, a lot of social media, depending on what you take in, it's shifted. It used to be like work, you know, work 16 hour days and, and be on the grind for five years straight. You'll get where you want. And now it's like, Hey, like work really hard, get the focus yeah. in, and then get your time away, which I kind of well, like. It's like shit. it's like an athlete, right? And and small anecdote back to uh, kind of some of the humor at West Point is uh, when when you're first when you first entered a West Point, you're called a, a a new cadet, and we always used to joke about literally this new cadet smell, uh, and it was just <laughs> putrid. It, it's it, it's not because they didn't shower. But the reason, honestly, was uh, chemically and metaphysically, uh, we found this out later, is when you are overworking yourself and you are not taking rest and you are not allowing your your body to recover mentally and physically, you when you overwork yourself, you're burning muscle. And what muscle actually produces when it burns off is ammonia. So that's literally why these new cadets has this new cadet smell is because they were being overworked, under nutrients, under rested and overworked. It's the same thing that happens in our work life, right? If you if you literally are just grinding, you're going to smell, your work product's <laughs> going to stink, and you're and you're going to eat into that muscle that you've been building, right? You have to rest, you have to get um that that recovery and so you can build on the muscle that you've been working I've, I've never, I've never heard that. I love it. I'm, I'm already thinking of another clip right there. You know, if you work too hard, you're going to start to smell. So be careful. <laughs> That's right. That's where my brain goes. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're getting close on time, Patrick. Um, 
Uh, just a couple. We we have to do a couple quick hitters. Uh, I'll hit you with one, and maybe Hayden, if you've got one. My question to you is: What advice would you give to your younger self, and what advice would you give to your future self? Oh man, uh, my younger self. I'll steal this from one of my mentors in San Francisco. Uh, she used to work at um, Lowe's and led innovation there, and then built her own product back in Sweden. And one of my favorite quotes from her was build your network before you need it. Mm. Um, so that's what I would, that's what I would say to my younger self um, and to my future self, man, that's tough. Um, I think you keep your eyes up. Um, I think that's how innovation and progress and impact truly happens is not with your head down and you not, not able to see the horizon. Uh, having a healthy look at the road ahead of you, but also looking up and seeing where life and trends and uh, business is going. Got to keep, keep your head up. I like that. Love it. We should play an Andy Grammer song when we, we clip that. <laughs> yeah, keep your head up. <laughs> okay. Got a lot of good clippable scenes today. Heck Grammer. yeah, man. He's awesome. Uh, yeah, a couple of quick hitters. Uh, usually these are like black and white uh, questions. Do you prefer hardware or software? Software. Okay. Hardware is hard. Yeah. You told me that. Cole knows that. Yeah. yeah. Been there, done that. Yeah. We've had many hours spent talking about that, haven't we, Cole? You got another one? Uh, no, I don't. Day, day or night? Do you have a preference? Oh, day. I'm a, I am I enjoy my rest and sleep, so okay. de definitely I'd prefer to be in the day. Working remotely or in the office? I... I would say for impact and collaboration in the office, for sure. Sure. Uh, our, our corporate policy is actually Tuesday and Wednesday, you're in the office. Thursday, you're somewhere in the community. Uh, and then Monday and Friday, you can you can, you can do whatever. Oh, um, like in I the community, like at a coffee remote. shop or something like that. Coffee shop, co-working space. Oh, no, no, no. office. I like that yeah. a lot. That's a great hybrid approach. Nice. Okay, last question. Let me think of a good one. I'm looking over at you like I'm giving you all the pressure. Come on now. Well, you mentioned skeet shooting. He's about to sign off. You, you mentioned you mentioned you're putting him to sleep. So, you know, we're wasting his time. My question is, do you prefer and do you do you hunt? I feel like you uh, Yeah, I mean not not as much as I uh, yeah. would like to, but yeah. Do you, do you prefer duck hunting or like bird hunting or did you prefer like deer hunting? Oh man. Um that's an or, not an I, a. I would thing. probably say I would say duck hunting, and and I'll, I'll flip that on you, and I'd say uh, fly fishing. Okay, uh, yeah, you because of the third. scenery. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing I, more I think peaceful for me. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's not about the 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 harvest or the kill or the. It is about the meat, by the way, at the end. But um, at the end of the day, for me, like hunting and and or duck or or fly fishing. I mean, it's about the serenity of all the amazing stuff that God has made and being able to take that in and, and feel how big that you are, but also feel how small you are in the grand scheme oh, of things. One million percent. And I'll say even more like that's my my favorite hobby is fishing. I love to hunt, too. But my favorite hobby is fishing. Wish I could do more of it. Trying to plan a couple of trips this this summer, actually. But fly fishing you get out the stream, cold stream with your waders on. You feel it just a little bit cold, and you're just, dude, you're just throwing the fly, and you don't care. Like every single cast, you're like, "This is the one. I'll get one this time." But you don't care. You can do it for that ten hours straight, and you're like, "It's okay. I'll get the next one. I'll get the next one." You end the day, you don't catch anything, and you're like, "That was a successful day." 
I won today. And it's like, you got nothing. You know, I'll, I'll text my wife. I'll be like, she's like, hey, did you catch anything? I'm like, no. It was a great day. And she's like, nothing? So at one point, and then I'll then we can wrap it up. I'll tell you this quick story. So we did a, a trip up into Grayling, Michigan, up on the Asable, which is phenomenal. I don't know if you've been there. Phenomenal, like, wild trout fishing. And we went up two years in a row. Didn't catch anything the first year. Like, couldn't catch couldn't catch anything. So the second year, she's like, are you really going back? You didn't catch it. I'm like, yeah, we just, we're just rookies. We're getting better at it. So we ended up going. We didn't catch anything for like three days straight. So we went to this hatchery and we got it. We went to the biggest, like they have like the different uh, like ponds. So we went to the I'm one sure. where it was like, you can catch like the like record breaking, like rainbow trout, right? We caught one <laughs> of those and we took it out near the river and we yeah. literally got a video. I got a video of me pulling it out and she's like, you gotta send it like you gotta send it in like this is the most crazy thing I've ever and it was just like we just caught it at the I told her I ended up telling her later that we got it at the hatchery but she was like I'm so proud of you babe I'm like yep all this time and effort like we didn't really catch anything it well, that's pretty, awesome it was pretty fun what, one final caveat is uh, the other thing that I would tell myself you know we talked work life balance and corporate rest and uh, all that kind of fun stuff I think w- one other thing um, that I would tell my younger self is turn it off. Mm. Um, often too many times we're so plugged in with email and our companies and social media and all this stuff. One of my favorite trips, uh, every year is a couple of buddies of mine. Uh, this is like five years ago now. I think we went to Rwanda to, to go help, um, entrepreneurs over there build their businesses. And we had never met other than in Rwanda. And now every year we go back to upstate, uh, Washington, actually, technically we're in Idaho. Uh, we fly into Spokane. Uh, but the place that we go fishing out there there's no cell reception. There's no nothing. The nearest ranger station is like half an hour away and it is so serene. And the first year it was unreal because we had like contracts with Humana and other corporate clients. I was like, I got to check my email. I got it. It'll be okay. Right. Right? Like it'll just turn it off. It'll be fine. Your body needs that break. So I love it. Good stuff. I love it. Well, Patrick, this has been an awesome, awesome conversation, man. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been fun. And I'll, I'll end it with this. Anybody listening, uh, to our listeners, viewers, um, we're going to go ahead and just – I'm actually going to go th- read through a little something so you guys have the complete details. Um, this is about the render competition. So just reiterating, Render Capital has the render competition going on for startups. They're investing $100,000 in the eight early-stage startups, and they've done this each – how many years have you guys done this now, Patrick? Uh, this will be our fourth year. Four years in a row, $800,000 for, uh, and, and they're doing it in the form of a safe investment. So it's a secure, secure, secure agreement for future for equity. Future equity. Um, so at a $2.5 million post money valuation, this is an unbelievable, unbelievable opportunity for any startups out here locally that I think you guys should jump on. I will be posting the links and posting stuff to our social, but Render and Render Capital, you guys have some unbelievable stuff going on, Patrick, and we're super excited to have you come back on next time. Yeah, thanks again, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. God bless. See ya. See ya.